This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part One, Chapter Four All at once the reporter sprang up, and telling the sailor that he would rejoin them at that same place, he climbed the cliff in the direction which the negro Neb had taken a few hours before. Anxiety hastened his steps, for he longed to obtain news of his friend, and he soon disappeared round an angle of the cliff. Herbert wished to accompany him. "'Stop here, my boy,' said the sailor. "'We have to prepare an encampment, and to try and find rather better grub than these shellfish. Our friends will want something when they come back. There is work for everybody.' "'I'm ready,' replied Herbert. "'All right,' said the sailor. "'That will do. We must set about it regularly. We are tired, cold, and hungry. Therefore we must have shelter, fire, and food. There is wood in the forest, and eggs and nests. We have only to find a house.' "'Very well,' returned Herbert. "'I will look for a cove among the rocks, and I shall be sure to discover some hole into which we can creep.' "'All right.' said Pencroft. Go on, my boy. They both walked to the foot of the enormous wall over the beach, far from which the tide had now retreated. But instead of going towards the north, they went southward. Pencroft had remarked, several hundred feet from the place at which they landed, a narrow cutting, out of which he thought a river or stream might issue. Now, on the one hand, it was important to settle themselves in the neighborhood of a good stream of water, and on the other it was possible that the current had thrown Cyrus Harding on the shore there. The cliff, as has been said, rose to a height of three hundred feet, but the mass was unbroken throughout, and even at its base, scarcely washed by the sea, it did not offer the smallest fissure which would serve as a dwelling. It was a perpendicular wall of very hard granite, which even the waves had not worn away. Towards the summit fluttered myriads of sea-fowl, and especially those of the web-footed species with long, flat, pointed beaks, a clamorous tribe, bold in the presence of man, who probably for the first time thus invaded their domains. Pencroft recognized the skua and other gulls among them, the voracious little sea-mew, which in great numbers nestled in the crevices of the granite. A shot fired among this swarm would have killed a great number, but to fire a shot a gun was needed, and neither Pencroft nor Herbert had one. Besides this, gulls and sea-mews are scarcely eatable, and even their eggs have a detestable taste. However, Herbert, who had gone forward a little more to the left, soon came upon rocks covered with seaweed, which, some hours later, would be hidden by the high tide. On these rocks, in the midst of slippery rack, abounded bivalve shellfish, not to be despised by starving people. Herbert called Pencroft, who ran up hastily. "'Here are mussels!' cried the sailor. "'These will do instead of eggs!' "'They are not mussels,' replied Herbert, who was attentively examining the mollusks attached to the rocks. "'They are lithodomes!' "'Are they good to eat?' asked Pencroft. "'Perfectly so. Then let us eat some lithodomes.' 
the sailor could rely upon Herbert. The young boy was well up in natural history, and always had had quite a passion for the science. His father had encouraged him in it, by letting him attend the lectures of the best professors in Boston, who were very fond of the intelligent industrious lad. And his turn for natural history was, more than once in the course of time, of great use, and he was not mistaken in this instance. These lithodomes were oblong shells, suspended in clusters and adhering very tightly to the rocks. They belonged to that species of molluscus perforators which excavate holes in the hardest stone. Their shell is rounded at both ends, a feature which is not remarked in the common mussel. Pencroft and Herbert made a good meal of the lithodomes, which were then half opened to the sun. They ate them as oysters, and as they had a strong peppery taste, they were palatable without condiments of any sort. Their hunger was thus appeased for the time, but not their thirst, which increased after eating these naturally spiced mollusks. They had then to find fresh water, and it was not likely that it would be wanting in such a capriciously uneven region. Pencroft and Herbert, after having taken the precaution of collecting an ample supply of lithodomes, with which they filled their pockets and handkerchiefs, regained the foot of the cliff. Two hundred paces farther they arrived at the cutting, through which, as Pencroft had guessed, ran a stream of water, whether fresh or not was to be ascertained. At this place the wall appeared to have been separated by some violent subterranean force. At its base was hollowed out a little creek, the farthest part of which formed a tolerably sharp angle. The watercourse at that part measured one hundred feet in breadth, and its two banks on each side were scarcely twenty feet high. The river became strong almost directly between the two walls of granite, which began to sink above the mouth. It then suddenly turned and disappeared beneath the wood of stunted trees half a mile off. "'Here is the water, and yonder is the wood we require,' said Pencroft. "'Well, Herbert, now we only want the house.' The water of the river was limpid. The sailor ascertained that at this time, that is to say, at low tide, when the rising floods did not reach it, it was sweet, this important point established, Herbert looked for some cavity which would serve them as a retreat, but in vain, everywhere the wall appeared smooth, plain, and perpendicular. However, at the mouth of the watercourse, and above the reach of the high tide, the convulsions of nature had formed not a grotto, but a pile of enormous rocks, such as are often met with in granite countries, and which bear the name of chimneys. Pencroft and Herbert penetrated quite far in among the rocks, by sandy passages in which light was not wanting, for it entered through the openings which were left between the blocks, of which some were only sustained by a miracle of equilibrium. But with the light came also air, a regular corridor gale, and with the wind the sharp cold from the exterior. However, the sailor thought that by stopping up some of the openings with a mixture of stones and sand, the chimneys could be rendered habitable. Their geometrical plan represented the typographical sign ampersand, which signifies etc. abridged, but by isolating the upper mouth of the sign, 
through which the south and west winds blew so strongly, they could succeed in making the lower part of use. "'Here's our work,' said Pencroft, "'and if we ever see Captain Harding again, he will know how to make something of this labyrinth.' "'We shall see him again, Pencroft,' cried Herbert, "'and when he returns he must find a tolerable dwelling here. It will be so, if we can make a fireplace in the left passage and keep an opening for the smoke.' "'So we can, my boy,' replied the sailor and these chimneys will serve our turn. Let us set to work, but first come and get a store of fuel. I think some branches will be very useful in stopping up those openings, through which the wind shrieks like so many fiends." Herbert and Pencroft left the chimneys, and, turning the angle, they began to climb the left bank of the river. The current here was quite rapid, and drifted down some dead wood. The rising tide, and it could already be perceived, must drive it back with force to a considerable distance. The sailor then thought that they could utilize this ebb and flow for the transport of heavy objects. After having walked for a quarter of an hour, the sailor and the boy arrived at the angle which the river made in turning towards the left. From this point its course was pursued through a forest of magnificent trees. These trees still retained their verdure, notwithstanding the advanced season, for they belong to the family of coniferae, which is spread over all the regions of the globe, from northern climates to the tropics. The young naturalist recognized especially the Diodara, which are very numerous in the Himalayan zone, and which spread around them a most agreeable odor. Between these beautiful trees sprang up clusters of firs, whose opaque open parasol brows spread wide around. Among the long grass Pencroft felt that his feet were crushing dry branches which crackled like fireworks. "'Well, my boy,' said he to Herbert, "'if I don't know the name of these trees, at any rate I reckon that we may call them burning wood, and just now that's the chief thing we want.' "'Let us get a supply,' replied Herbert, who immediately set to work. The collection was easily made. It was not even necessary to lop the trees, for enormous quantities of dead wood were lying at their feet. But if fuel was not wanting, the means of transporting it was not yet found. The wood, being very dry, would burn rapidly. It was therefore necessary to carry to the chimneys a considerable quantity, and the loads of two men would not be sufficient. Herbert remarked this. "'Well, my boy,' replied the sailor, "'there must be some way of carrying this wood. There is always a way of doing everything. If we had a cart or a boat it would be easy enough.' "'But we have the river,' said Herbert. "'Right,' replied Pencroft. "'The river will be to us like a road which carries of itself, and rafts have not been invented for nothing.' "'Only,' observed Herbert, "'at this moment our road is going the wrong way.' for the tide is rising. "'We shall be all right if we wait until it ebbs,' replied the sailor. "'And then we will trust it to carry our fuel to the chimneys. Let us get the raft ready.' The sailor, followed by Herbert, directed his steps towards the river. They both carried, each in proportion to his strength, a load of wood bound in faggots. They found on the bank also a great quantity of dead branches in the midst of grass 
among which the foot of man had probably never before trod. Pencroft began directly to make his raft. In a kind of little bay, created by a point of the shore which broke the current, the sailor and the lad placed some good-sized pieces of wood, which they had fastened together with dry creepers. A raft was thus formed, on which they stacked all they had collected, sufficient indeed to have loaded at least twenty men. In an hour the work was finished, and the raft moored to the bank, awaiting the turning of the tide. There were still several hours to be occupied, and with one consent Pencroft and Herbert resolved to gain the upper plateau, so as to have a more extended view of the surrounding country. Exactly two hundred feet behind the angle formed by the river, the wall, terminated by a fall of rocks, died away in a gentle slope to the edge of the forest. It was a natural staircase. Herbert and the sailor began their ascent. Thanks to the vigor of their muscles they reached the summit in a few minutes, and proceeded to the point above the mouth of the river. On attaining it, their first look was cast upon the ocean, which not long before they had traversed in such a terrible condition. They observed, with emotion, all that part to the north of the coast on which the catastrophe had taken place. It was there that Cyrus Harding had disappeared. They looked to see if some portion of their balloon, to which a man might possibly cling, yet existed. Nothing. The sea was but one vast watery desert. As to the coast, it was solitary also. Neither the reporter nor Neb could be anywhere seen. But it was possible that at this time they were both too far away to be perceived. "'Something tells me,' cried Herbert, "'that a man as energetic as Captain Harding would not let himself be drowned like other people. He must have reached some point of the shore. Don't you think so, Pencroft?' The sailor shook his head sadly. He little expected ever to see Cyrus Harding again, but wishing to leave some hope to Herbert. "'Doubtless, doubtless,' said he, "'our engineer is a man who would get out of a scrape to which any one else would yield.' In the meantime he examined the coast with great attention. Stretched out below them was the sandy shore, bounded on the right of the river's mouth by lines of breakers. The rocks which were visible appeared like amphibious monsters reposing in the surf. Beyond the reef the sea sparkled beneath the sun's rays. To the south a sharp point closed the horizon, and it could not be seen if the land was prolonged in that direction, or if it ran southeast and southwest, which would have made the coast a very long peninsula. At the northern extremity of the bay, the outline of the shore was continued to a great distance in a wider curve. There the shore was low, flat, without cliffs, and with great banks of sand, which the tide left uncovered. Pencroft and Herbert then returned towards the west. Their attention was first arrested by the snow-topped mountain, which rose at a distance of six or seven miles. From its first declivities to within two miles of the coast were spread vast masses of wood, relieved by large green patches, caused by the presence of evergreen trees. Then from the edge of this forest to the shore extended a plain, scattered irregularly with groups of trees. 
Here and there on the left sparkled through glades the waters of a little river. They could trace its winding course back towards the spur of the mountain, among which it seemed to spring. At the point where the sailor had left his raft of wood, it began to run between the two high granite walls. But if on the left bank the wall remained clear and abrupt, on the right bank, on the contrary, it sank gradually. The massive sides changed to isolated rocks, the rocks to stones, the stones to shingle running to the extremity of the point. "'Are we on an island?' murmured the sailor. "'At any rate, it seems to be big enough,' replied the lad. "'An island, ever so big, is an island all the same,' said Pencroft. But this important question could not yet be answered. A more perfect survey had to be made to settle the point. As to the land itself, island or continent, it appeared fertile, agreeable in its aspect, and varied in its productions. "'This is satisfactory,' observed Pencroft, "'and in our misfortune we must thank Providence for it.' "'God be praised!' responded Herbert, whose pious heart was full of gratitude to the author of all things. Pencroft and Herbert examined for some time the country on which they had been cast, but it was difficult to guess, after so hasty an inspection, what the future had in store for them. They then returned, following the southern crest of the granite platform, bordered by a long fringe of jagged rocks, of the most whimsical shapes. Some hundreds of birds lived there nestled in the holes of the stone. Herbert, jumping over the rocks, startled the whole flock of those winged creatures. "'Oh!' cried he. "'Those are not gulls nor seamews!' "'What are they, then?' asked Pencroft. "'Upon my word, one would say they were pigeons!' "'Just so. But there are wild or rock pigeons. I recognize them by the double band of black on the wing, by the white tail, and by the slate-colored plumage. But if the rock pigeon is good to eat, its eggs must be excellent, and we will soon see how many they may have left in their nests.' "'We will not give them time to hatch, unless it is in the shape of an omelette,' replied Pencroft merrily. "'But what will you make your omelette in?' asked Herbert. "'In your hat?' "'Well,' replied the sailor, "'I am not quite conjurer enough for that. We must come down to eggs in the shell, my boy, and I will undertake to dispatch the hardest.' Pencroft and Herbert attentively examined the cravities in the granite and they really found eggs in some of the hollows. A few dozen being collected were packed in the sailor's handkerchief, and as the time when the tide would be full was approaching, Pencroft and Herbert began to redescend towards the watercourse. When they arrived there, it was an hour after midday. The tide had already turned. They must now avail themselves of the ebb to take the wood to the mouth. Pencroft did not intend to let the raft go away in the current without guidance, neither did he mean to embark on it himself to steer it. But a sailor is never at a loss when there is a question of cables or ropes, and Pencroft rapidly twisted a cord, a few fathoms long, made of dry creepers. This vegetable cable was fastened to the after part of the raft, and the sailor held it in his hand while Herbert, pushing off the raft with a long pole, kept it in the current. 
This succeeded capitally. The enormous load of wood drifted down the current. The bank was very equal. There was no fear that the raft would run aground, and before two o'clock they arrived at the river's mouth, a few paces from the chimneys. End of chapter 4